Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Aaron. Aaron, say hi. I didn't jump in on you that time. Hello, everybody. Uh, yeah, no, you're doing good. How are you doing? What are you, what have you been up to this week? What has been your your wild and crazy adventures? Do you know what? I did actually have something to report on, but I can't remember what it was. <laughs> you can't remember. Uh, that's pretty useless. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was something really interesting as well. I remember uh, thinking, oh, if not, not ah, that was it. I saw a um a giant horn tail. That was really cool. Giant horn tail. Yeah, yeah. Google it. It's um. It's really cool. Um, I will uh, Google Making it as well. Making me think it's something out of Harry Potter now. <laughs> yeah. Horntail. Oh, right. Okay. It's a species of um, uh, of wood wasp. Yeah. Yeah. Right. If you'd have said... Huge, though. If you'd have said wood wasp, I would have known what you mean. Uh, but yeah, I probably should have said wood wasp. But I, I know giant horntails. But yeah. it, it was huge. Like, honestly, like the size of my thumb. It was massive. They are they are um, quite a cool looking thing. They are, and it sounds like it sounds like a Chinook. You know the helicopter with the yeah. the dual horizontal rotor blades. Yeah, uh, it sounds like and it would smack into things. Smack, smack. It fell into the grass, the long the longer grass that we keep, and and you could hear it going. But the grass all going going slap 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 slap. Yeah, very interesting. Um, yeah, it was cool. Uh, to see that. Um, other than that, I uh, I'm now all caught up on Ahsoka, which I think is. So far, looking like it might be the best Star Wars series apart from Andor, which was just incredible series. Did you realize, Gareth, uh, not to not to take this on a on a downward uh, a downward turn, but um, more to pay homage to someone who I think probably uh, impacted both our lives? Mm-hmm. Did you realize that yesterday, the day before recording, so on the on the fourth of yep. September. It was the 17th anniversary of the passing of Steve Irwin. I did and I didn't. Um, I did realize that because I saw a couple of videos that came out, but it was quite late on in the day. So mm. I wasn't completely sure. But no, I wasn't. I, I definitely wasn't sure about uh, it being 17 years. That's 17 years. 2006 was wow. when, he, when yeah. he passed away. Um. Great I shame. remember I remember watching the funeral on on the internet because it was it was televised on the internet. I didn't know that. I don't yeah. think I watched it. No. I've still got, and this is this is a deep cut for for any Australian country fans out there that listen to us. I've still got on my iPod the version of True Blue by Slim Dusty that was sung at Steve Irwin's funeral on my iPod. Oh yeah. <laughs> real deep cut there for you there's something that i've been trying to to get for for the podcast studio when it's ready and it's a very special funko pop steve Irwin with a crocodile it's one of those bigger pieces like you often see um robert patterson's batman in in his batmobile or um 
Daenerys on Drogon, one of those yeah. bigger ones. But it's uh-huh. Steve with a crocodile, uh, and I'm I'm hoping to try and get that for the uh, for the podcast studio when it's set up because it's a mm. really cool Funko Pop. Yeah, that would be cool. Very, yeah. Well, uh, I I went on my travels and and didn't see any of that. Uh, well, I didn't didn't see a Funko Pop of that. I did see Funko Pops of Jurassic Park characters though, because oh, yeah. they they had uh, a sort of satellite pop up shop in the uh, the place where I went to, um, which by this point I've put up uh, various bits on social media that I went off to mm. London. Uh, to go and see the Patago Titan exhibit in the Natural History Museum. Incredible. In a, in, in a few years, uh, so it was always good to go go back again. The biggest disappointment, I'm going to have to say, two two big disappointments, that one of them is just an eternal thing and you can't get around it, no matter how much you plan. Uh, and the other one being a disappointment because of my own personal thoughts first one being the amount of people i know it's london but my god (laughs) the Mm. amount of people in the natural history museum and the amount of people just pushing in front of you just oh just i hate i hate being in large crowds i like being out here in the country you know a large crowd is what five or six people here London, it was just yeah, you you couldn't move in some places uh, in in the museum for for people, especially the more popular exhibits, you know, the dinosaur gallery and and the the mammal gallery and that. Uh, so that wasn't great, but it's vastly outnumbered by the uh, the good exhibits. Um, and the other bit that I'm I'm still not keen on, even though I I, I liked seeing it, is the fact that they've replaced Dippy. The Diplodocus, which mm. used to be in the entrance of the Natural History Museum with a blue whale So I don't know. I I'm in I'm in half minds. I love blue whales, but the Natural History Museum has already got a mammal gallery that is big enough that it houses a life-sized model of a blue whale. So Blue whale, you know, you you already have it there, and that skeleton I think used to be in that mammal gallery, possibly. Um, but Dippy used to be the thing that you saw as you came in the door, which it is a bit of shame. Inspired your learning, didn't it? As soon as you saw yeah. that, you just went, "Wow!" And that was it. You're in. Um, but uh, Dippy, he's on tour, isn't he? So I, it will I think come that's back. Finished. To- I think it, I think that tour finished, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it was it was cool, and I, I hope that one day they'll even they could even put Dippy back there because the blue whale is actually up above you. It's quite impressive how you walk underneath this thing, and the Patago Titan exhibit is just as impressive as well. Um, it's actually smaller than I expected as a dinosaur. I don't know, maybe I sort of built this up in my mind that it was going to be a lot bigger in uh in sort of general size and i suppose the actual live animal would look incredibly impressive it's still a huge animal but i think because they've had to push the neck down to allow it to fit into the uh the the height of the room it's made it seem mm. a little less they didn't have uh necks exactly like a brachiosaurus but sort of somewhere in between a diplodocus and a brachiosaurus you know sort of at a 45 degree angle sort of thing but yeah, oh, the only other thing or the, the other thing that I think is definitely worth mentioning 
is we saw Andy's clock from Andy's Dinosaur Adventures, <laughs> which if you're a parent, uh, probably a parent, especially in the UK, you, you will know what that clock is all about. It's how Andy uh, ta- travels in time to go and see the dinosaurs. And there's actually a bit in the corner of the museum where there's a plaque where Andy's clock sits. So, uh, yeah, it, you know, it didn't, it wasn't working um, as far as I could try and fiddle with the dials and everything. I, I didn't go back in time, unfortunately. Just to kind of let you know about Dippy, he's actually on, uh, going to be... So from the 20th of February this year, he embarked on the, a three-year period at uh, Coventry. Um, no, he's up in, in Coventry. Well, fair I enough. I think he's there for, for three years. Well, yeah. pretty much two years now. That's what I can find anyway. Mm. Well, if you're up there, go and check him out. But I would still... Say, despite the crowds, despite the uh, having to get on various buses and trains to get in and out of London, I would still say it's far, uh, far. It, I would still say that it's massively worth it to go to the Natural History Museum and, and see some of these things. It's one of the, if not the best museum in the UK for uh, natural history stuff. I can't think of many yeah. others. I'm hoping to go up a bit myself. Uh, along the way, I did also buy a really good visualized version of darwin's notebook that's really uh, it's an absolutely uh, brilliant sort of version of his diaries and his journal that he um made on the uh, the beagle and oh, that's I, haven't, cool. I haven't been able to put it down it's been it's been really good <laughs> anyway shall we uh head on into this week's news features and see what we've got awaiting us in the news yeah let's do it Right, well, we're into this week's news. Uh, Aaron, what's going on? Thank you, Gareth. Uh, Every week, we are inundated with news coming out of the weird and wonderful world of natural sciences. And though we are but a small team, we want you, our fellow cupboard dwellers, to be kept up to date on the good, the bad, and the extraordinary. So let's open up our Natural History Cupboard Newsreel, where we've compiled some of the more interesting headlines and where to find them, and we'll dive on in. Well, starting things off with a weird definitely a news story from ABC News Australia. Uh, Living roundworm pulled from brain of patients suspected to have come from python poo. Most people would have probably (laughs) seen this one on the news the last couple of uh, days or so. A 64-year-old woman from New South Wales who started uh, with abdominal pain, diarrhea and fever and night sweats turned into a world first, a 16-month medical ordeal. Um, where surgeons removed an eight centimeter long living roundworm from the patient's brain following an abnormal MRI scan. The patient, uh, sorry, the patient, the parasite uh, is usually found in carpet pythons and has never been known to infect humans. Doctors believe that the infection likely came from, uh, from foraging greens contaminated with python poo and nearly uh, a year and a half long after the symptoms had first appeared, brain surgeons at Canberra Hospital pulled out the, the eight centimeter long parasite alive and wriggling from her brain. Oh, grim. <laughs> and from IFLS, Iceland, uh, unfortunately, 
resumes wailing in spite of hopes band would last forever and mm. um uh so yeah despite what we reported on in june of this year looks like whale meets back on the menu boys uh, after banning the practice in june due to animal welfare concerns the icelandic government has unfortunately allowed whaling to resume this month under new regulations, such as target individuals must be no further than 25 meters from the vessel hunting them, uh, and whales with calves cannot be hunted or must not be hunted. Um, and certain kill methods have also been banned. The news has disappointed just about everyone, um, mm. particularly as the primary target is the fin whale, which is a species considered vulnerable to extinction. Although it appears that it still hope that this is this is the last whale hunt, uh, Icelandic whale hunt. I can't really see why anyone would even bother. You know, no. let's go and eat some highly contaminated meat of an animal that is going to die horribly. Well, I was told by local people in Iceland that that they actually don't. Like, Icelanders don't actually eat whale or puffin meat. Um, it's more of a, you know, it's more for the tourists. So. You can vote. You can vote against us with your wallets whenever you're visiting Iceland. I suppose it wouldn't be first on my menu. No, certainly not. <laughs> well, he, continuing the cetacean-style news, uh, a whale has been spotted off Porth Madog uh, in Wales in a rare sighting. Uh, a family have spotted a whale off the Welsh coast in what's being called an amazing sighting. Hmm. Anthony Dale uh, said that him uh, sorry said that he and his family were jet skiing off the coast of Porth Madog in Gwynedd on Thursday when they saw the northern bottlenose whale. The mammal is part of the beaked whale family and is known for deep sea dives uh, and is very uncommon in shallow waters. Uh, it's not known, though, why it has appeared off the Gwynedd coast, uh, but ill health and climate change could certainly be considered factors as to why it was there. It's even more irritating as I said a couple of weeks ago, when I went sailing on my dad's boat and we couldn't even manage to spot a whale and yet another boat a mile away from us manages to spot pilot whales, which just, yeah. Nature seems to run away from me on things like that. <laughs> anyway. Uh, very good. Um, and from Live Science Online, one of the longest dino tracks in the world revealed by drought in Texas State Park. So this is the news that 70 dinosaur tracks dating back 110 million years have been discovered due to riverbed exposure caused by the two consecutive years of extreme drought and heat conditions in the area. The tracks, said to belong to an Acrocamphosaurus and a uh, Sauroposeidon, were found in the Paluxy River which is a stretch of river that snakes through the Dinosaur Valley State Park in Glen Rose, Texas. Mm. I was going to say, that's that's two very interesting dinosaurs there. Mm. Uh, so, pioneering wind-powered cargo ship sets sail. Um, this is a cargo ship that's been fitted with giant, rigid, British-designed sails has set out on its maiden voyage. Shipping from Car uh, Cargill, uh, which has chartered the vessel, oh, sorry, shipping firm Cargill, which has chartered the vessel, hopes that the technology will help the industry chart a course towards a greener future. What are being called the wind wings sails are designed to cut fuel consumption and therefore the shipping, uh, the ship's carbon footprint. It's estimated the industry is responsible for about 
2.1% of the global carbon dioxide uh, emissions. Mm -hmm. The Pisces Ocean Maiden Journey um, from China to Brazil will provide the first real-world test of the wind wings, an opportunity to assess whether a return to the traditional ways of propelled shipping seas at propelled ships could be the way forward in moving cargo at sea. To give you an idea of what this looks like, I'm sure you're all probably picturing a sailing vessel, <laughs> but it this is one that's got like towers uh, that sort of act a bit like a, a scoop going round and around. Think of those signs that you occasionally see outside of shops that the wind blows them round and round. But uh, yeah, yeah you know, hardly it's hardly um, a new idea. We've been sailing sailing ships for thousands of years. Yeah. Well, if it works and if it's efficient, then it would well, be good to go back yeah. to it, wouldn't it? Uh, so next, come from BBC Online, drivers asked to help count sightings of roadkill via new app. So this uh, is, is this this news is about wildlife charity, the uh, People's Trust for Endangered Species, who are encouraging road users to download the Mammals on Roads app. The app allows users to upload information regarding roadkill they've observed on their journeys to better inform the charity of which animals need the most help in which areas. Hmm. That's actually how uh, they... Um... That's actually how they counted or did population surveys uh, for um, polecats in North Wales on the oh, A55. Yeah. They'd take the bodies uh, that people would report and they'd genetically test them to see how much pure polecat they were as to how whether they were inbred with ferret or um, anything else. So Interesting. It's really useful using data that's sort of, well, lying there on the road. Uh, and finally, uh, from the Independent, three-eyed dinosaur shrimps are waking up in the Nevada desert after the Burning Man washout. So whereas we had drought in um, Texas. Texas, you said? Yeah, yeah Texas. We're now we've got the washout of Burning, Burning Man in uh, Nevada, um, where we are seeing three-eyed dinosaur shrimp, which are better known as triops, which are a type of uh, not shrimp. They're their own little group, but they're a, hmm. a desert living species. These ones, after the flooded festival, uh, upended, uh, was upended. Um, the triops, which are known as fairy shrimp as well, are small crustaceans that can survive uh, years lying dormant in drought conditions as eggs until weather conditions become favorable. Flooding the area, perfect for them, brings them to the surface, uh, and they started to appear. And there's many videos of these nicknamed dinosaur shrimps um, basically turning up. They get quite big as well. They're a very pretty-looking little uh, creature. Hmm. But yeah, good to see. Good to see that uh, even in places where you get far too many people probably dancing around and doing far too much damage to the environment, there's still life there as well. It just hides away yeah. most of the time. And uh, then... My final entry in the newsreel is, again, from Life Science, and that is the news that hungry bears are invade and overrun abandoned city in Canada after wildfire evacuations. So on August 16th, around 99% of Yellowknife residents were evacuated due to the crazy wildfires burning in the region. Only key workers remained behind to oversee the running of the city located in Canada's Northwest Territories. 
A week later, American black bears started visiting the city in notable numbers, which have seemingly increased as time continues to pass by. There are currently no research-backed statistics to suggest the population density of these bears reclaiming ancestral lands, but it's likely that they were drawn to the city because whilst the fires are probably making foraging difficult, the city is offering up the usual human-provided smorgasbord of leftovers and waste without the risk of upsetting the residents now. Uh, and yeah, that about wraps it up for this week's Newsreel instalment. Remember, if you guys at home have news articles and topics of interest you think we should cover, send them in, and you may see them covered either in a Newsreel or uh, in the main topic discussion. And with that said, uh, this week I have the main topic, and it is uh, kind of a dual uh, main topic because I was going to discuss the... Um, I, I was going to discuss the polar bear capital of the world, soon to be overrun with record numbers of bears due to shift in sea ice. When uh, we got a um, when we got a listener recommended article in, which was very uh, much related to what we're going to talk about, so uh, I'm doing it as a dual one. So thanks, Mum, because it came from 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 my mum. Um, yeah, and. This one's from Live Science, and it's the mass die-off uh, strikes endangered emperor penguin chicks across four of five West Antarctic uh, colonies. So this is the news that four colonies of emperor penguins have been hit with devastating chick mortality this year in West Antarctica. The lead author behind the study, geographic information scientist Peter Fretwell, said, "We and I quote, we have never seen emperor penguins fail to breed at this scale in a single season. The loss of sea ice in this region during the Antarctic summer made it very unlikely that displaced chicks would survive, end quote. Uh, the study supports the concerning prediction that 98% of the entire species could be functionally extinct by the turn of this century. Uh, this is due to the species requiring thick sea ice that is properly frozen to the shore on which to breed, which is an event that takes place during uh, May and June, which is the Antarctic uh, winter. Now, upon hatching, the chicks are entirely dependent on their parents and perfect sea ice conditions. Too much sea ice and the trips to and from the sea uh, to, to hunt for food are too long and could result in the starvation of the chicks. But too little sea ice, as is the current case, uh, has meant that the chicks are at a much higher chance of tumbling into the sea and drowning, which is what's happened. So, uh, Gareth, do you know how the five West Antarctic empires are monitored? Just out of interest. I imagine because of the remoteness and also because of the uh, ease of the technology these days, I imagine it's probably done by satellite. Yeah, very good, but... Uh... I was hoping that you'd go a bit more specific because it's actually done via guano. Uh, so for uh -huh. those of you who haven't watched Ace Ventura, guano is poo. <laughs> um, <laughs> so this stuff stains the ice brown um, <laughs> and the colonies produce a lot of it. So, uh, so much so. In don't fact, eat the brown snow. No, don't eat brown snow. <laughs> Uh, there's so there's so much poo that you can uh, you can see their icy poo graffiti from space. Um, so the five colonies exist in Bellingshausen, which is a sea region of the Western Ant Antarctic, and they return every year to this spot to breed. Satellite imagery captured over the past 14 years have allowed this habit to be monitored 
but also made it abundantly clear that four of these colonies very likely lost all of their chicks this year, which is just uh, absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, yeah. This comes hot on the heels of the last two years, uh, seeing the lowest levels of sea ice recorded since satellite monitoring began over 40 years ago. And what's more, this is the very area where the sea ice melted entirely in November of last year and then never grew back when June of this year rolled around. Um, both of which were signs of trouble on the horizon. Uh, and that is serious trouble. Uh, whilst atmospheric and oceanic changes are known to impact sea ice growth, uh, you know, things like El Nino, um, those kind of events in El Nino, uh, it's thought that such a dramatic impact could actually be linked to, to human-led climate change, a suspect that has made its presence felt with a vengeance across the globe this year, as pretty much the entire of the world was on fire at one point, apart from, apart from Britain, which just Reeked was rain down. down on us for the entirety. <laughs> In fact, our summer has only just started just yesterday. Yeah. Um, with all the kids <laughs> going back to school. <laughs> uh, so if we now take a Superman-inspired leap to the other side of our planet, to the other pole, something very similar is actually occurring in the Arctic. So whilst there are no penguins in the Northern Hemisphere, there are certainly equally ven uh, vulnerable species whose existence on Earth dangles by a thread. Polar bears have been making their presence known more than ever in the polar bear capital of the world, Churchill, which is a, it's a town in Canada. Uh, last no, year, there were four times as many polar bears using the town than previous years, with polar bear alert program officers having received 76 calls from residents as of August 16th. To put that into perspective, this time last year, the team had received just 18 calls. 18 calls in previous years at this time of year, 76 this year. Uh, it's incredible. Um, according to Manitoba government statistics provided to Live Science for their article, the officers get around 250 calls per year and will temporarily detain and re-release 50 bears in that uh, same period. Most of these events happen in the October to November time. Um, but with calls already greatly surpassed in previous years, the program believes they're in for a busy and record-setting 2023 season. After the sea ice melts, just to give you a bit of background on what these bears do, uh, the bears will travel inland to spend spring breeding and surviving off of other food sources. Around 300 of the monitored bears will stop off in Churchill in the winter months, scavenging leftovers and waste as they pass through the region on their way to hunt seals on the frozen sea off of the uh, Hudson Bay. But this year, almost every bear being monitored, some 600 plus individuals, are already in Manitoba, ready for an earlier sea ice freezeover. A change... Uh, which has been brought about by climate change. Uh, with Churchill sea ice freezing earlier than other areas of Hudson Bay, the bears are coming to town much sooner and in greater number and for longer durations to get a good start on the season's uh, sealing prospects. Whilst changes to sea ice uh, freeze four cycles are impacting the, the bears' behaviour and Churchill residents and visitors may enjoy more bears this year, uh, year on year as the effects of climate change heighten it is disguising further distra dis distressing statistics and that is that the hudson bay bear populations have plummeted dropping 27 percent in the last five years and uh, a further 11 percent in the five years preceding preceding that period 
Now, historically, when the emperor penguins have dealt with sea ice loss, they've adapted by switching up breeding grounds the following year. And polar bears have been known to spend longer at sea looking for suitable hunting grounds when it's happened to them. However, if vast expanses like these continue to disappear in the coming years, it very well could uh, end the tenure of animals like emperor penguins and polar bears on Earth, which is not only ludicrous uh, to as a thought to entertain, because bluntly, we, we can still actually make a difference and help them. But it's also a very scary one because animals in these habitats are very much the canaries in the coal mine for the rest of us sharing our less frigid biomes. And when they start to drop, that means something very bad is uh, is on its way. Um, so, yeah, Gareth, that's what's happening on either kind of end of the planet, uh, the, the top and the bottom. Um, it's been something that's been warned about over for many many years and now it's now it's being seen uh i'm not so sure it's likely to change many minds though on whether or not climate change is a real thing unfortunately no unfortunately it seems far too often that things like this are on the news and then quickly off them because i don't know love island or i'm a celebrity punch me in the face or something is on it's 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 not just the the like that kind that brand of entertainment it's also the fact that for some reason um that and this is this is global this is not relegated to just the religious it's not relegated to just the westerners it's not relegated to anyone it just seems to be a global phenomenon that people are uh i mean you've always had a certain sector of of society that is ignorant to 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 science through no fault of their own because it's not exactly i mean education has failed many of us but um it's also the the this phenomena of people turn their backs on expert opinion and uh and 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 scientific uh theory illiteracy yeah mm. yes that is far too unfortunately common and is leading to far too many animals and habitats and just general scientific theorems being seen as wrong. Or you can have a different version of things when it is very much, in some of these cases, a black and white issue. I've, yeah, it's yeah. Um, a misunderstanding of the scientific terminology of the word theory, I think, has done a lot of damage as well. Yes. Um, the fact that yeah. people confuse, I have an idea with i have a theory because a theory is very much a done deal not not entirely yeah. of course there it's more complex than that but for the sake of this conversation i think most of the time when people are saying that they have a theory it or they're actually saying i have an idea which the the best kind of i suppose the best correlation would be the word hypothesis you have an idea Definitely. that's untested uh but it's you know, um, it's not a theory. A theory is something that was an idea and has been tested against sev several scientific parameters to uh, make sure it's the um, about as good as it can about, get. Yeah, about yeah. about the the best understandings we can get at present, and it be constantly yeah. tested against as we understand more and have more ways of testing things. Uh, science mm. is often not about proving something. It's often about disproving something. Yeah. 
Well, shall we move on from the rather glum news uh, and into this week's Creature Feature? Yeah. Hmm. Right. It's the Creature Feature. Right. Well, this week, uh, I want to start our Creature Feature off with a question for you, Aaron. Okay. Are you prepared? Uh, um, Am I prepared? Am I ever? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, what, there's actually going to be a couple of questions in this this creature feature for you to answer. So answer as, as honestly as you, you think. What bird do you think was the first to be domesticated? The first bird to be domesticated? Mm-hmm. Um, right. I'm going to talk myself through this because I'm not 100% sure. Uh, I would say that contrary to what Contrary to what I think most people go for, I do not think it would have been jungle fowl to make chicken. I do not think it would have been waterfowl like ducks. I'm thinking it would be some sort of falcon, um, some sort of bird of prey uh, okay. um, to 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 use as a as a hunting thing. Although the the uh, there is another element to that that you could also say that perhaps. Um, something like a raven maybe as a companion but no i'm gonna stick to uh i think i'm gonna yeah i'm i'm pretty confident i'm gonna stick with a uh, a falcon of some kind of bird of prey right okay well i can tell you what the answer is uh and, and based on the fact that if you're listening to this you've probably seen what the episode is about uh it's the cassowary is the answer yes that's cassowary right was the first domesticate yes it would appear so that large flightless bird from northern Australia and New Guinea, with adults maintaining large territories, which they uh, have been known to aggressively defend using their large, quite famous claws, which adorn their feet. A little bit like people thinking of them as modern-day velociraptors. As a result, though, the cassowary doesn't seem to be an obvious candidate for being reared by humans uh, for domestication. But despite this, the birds are actually have been reared and hunted on the island of New Guinea right to this day. They are still still used in religious ceremonies and also just as general sort of cultural icons. New research, though, has suggested that this tradition has actually dated back tens of thousands of years. And it's been based on fossil evidence of eggshell fragments of cassowaries found in two prehistoric sites in Papua New Guinea. Uh, suggesting that humans have been farming cassowaries as early as 18,000 years ago. Wow. Massively outstrips um, domestic chickens and geese and ducks. And essentially what they think has happened is the raising of cassowaries has been one of the earliest examples of humans managing wild birds for for meat. So essentially taking eggs from uh, wild cassowaries, which I would imagine is probably quite dangerous, rearing them up and then either using them for food when they're fully grown or having them uh, hatch their own eggs and then eating them or using them in religious ceremonies. So, yeah, they vastly outstrip chickens. So as you could probably guess, this week's creature feature is on the cassowary. This fact that I've just just outlined should, in fact, be what the bird is best known for, um, realistically. it should, That should be the tagline fact is the first domesticated bird. But unfortunately, when Hmm. most people are asked about cassowaries to name a fact, 
nine out of 10 people would likely say that they're deadly aggressive birds. They'll kick out and gut you in one kick. Uh, but this is not as accurate a depiction also as you might think. Cassowaries have far more facts about them than just the fact that they have sharp claws on their feet. So I'm now going to uh, to ask you the second question, Aaron. How okay. many people have been killed by cassowaries? Oh, um... Recorded human fatalities of cassowaries. I think that I I think that I think that their reputation has been completely overrated. I preface this by saying that I don't know of all the ratites, I know the least about cassowaries. I'm I'm a bit more uh, I'm a bit more savvy when it comes to ostriches, kiwis and um and emus. I uh, you know what? I'd a love little to bit see them as well, but I'd love to see number of people killed by kiwis. That would just be yeah. <laughs> that'd be <laughs> hilarious. Kiwis stabbing <laughs> people in the eyes. No, I'm I I think the reputation has been over overblown somewhat. So I'm gonna go with two. Uh I'll even go so far as to specify that one was uh rather modern and it was um or rather like, you know, modern times. It was some idiot uh trying to get too close, scaring scaring it and getting a, a kick. And I'm going to say the other one was an accidental killing at some point early in their domestication. Well, Aaron, I, can you just point out to to the listeners that you haven't seen any of these facts that I'm about to present to you? Um, no, I've not seen. I've not seen anything. Anything no, at all. You, you're not aware of this previously. No, no, I am. I am. Like I said, I'm. I'm. I'm embarrassingly a little bit. Um, uh, a little bit ignorant when it comes to cassowaries, even though they're actually probably my second favorite uh, ratite. I actually know next to nothing about them. Well, be embarrassed no longer because you are spot on with the number of deaths. It is in fact two, and you are eerily <laughs> close with your descriptions there. So I will go through the two, uh, the two. <laughs> yeah, the I will go through the two human fatalities and a third bonus fatality at the end. Um, oh. So, well, I'd actually put down in my script, the answer will shock you. And I've put, no, Aaron, the uh, the number is much lower than you think. So, <laughs> I was expecting higher. That's fine. But you've, you've gone bang on the nails. So this is brilliant. So I'm the first, impressed. The, the first documented human fatality was caused by a cassowary on April 16th, 1926 in Australia. So a 16-year-old, Philip McLean, and his brother, aged 13, came across a cassowary on their property and decided to try and club it to death. You know, that usual fun thing that kids do. You know, let's go and club a large bird to death. So as <laughs> you can imagine, the bird was rather, well, annoyed with this thought, and it kicked the younger boy who fell and ran away as his older brother struck the bird with his club. The older of the McLean brothers then tripped and fell to the ground. Whilst he was on the ground, the cassowary kicked out again and got him in the neck and opened up a a one and a half centimeter wound, uh, severing his jugular vein. The boy died of his injuries shortly thereafter. That's the first death. Uh, If you ask me, well, they, well, as you were just saying, people messing around and pretty much deserving it. Um, Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty much it. Now, the other attack happened well a full 
90 odd years later and actually happened in April as well. Weirdly, again, there's something about April and cassowaries. Uh, in 2019, a 75-year-old man from Florida, that's probably uh, enough to tell you what's going to happen next, you know, type in Florida man and then the usual <laughs> crazy story appears. Um, not, not dispurging any of our listeners from Florida, but there is this weird stereotype about uh news articles from your particular state so a 75 year old man was attacked uh, at, by at least one of the exotic birds that he reared on his property in florida again the bird had struck out whilst the person had been knocked prone to the ground and his injuries were so severe that he later died in hospital now i can't actually find any particular reasoning as to why this had happened um i don't think he was aggressively attacking the birds but a 75 year old man being knocked down by one of these very powerful birds and then well kicking out at him again is is enough to obviously put someone in hospital and and then yeah uh, suffer some pretty bad fatalities so if you take into account those two fatalities one happening in its natural range uh, by people trying to club it to death and the bird protecting itself and then one in captivity where the bird is familiar with humans and we don't fully know the situation, we don't really need to see these birds as much of a danger. I'm still not saying go up to them because they are very powerful animals, but they certainly don't deserve the uh, the bad reputation that they seem to mm. uh, to warrant. In fact, if you look up on the U- uh, on YouTube on the YouTube's, if you look on the YouTube's <laughs> <laughs> or TikTok, even in fact, there there's some of the worst ones or, or reels on Facebook where a they can't pronounce the word cassowary the well they call it the cassowary uh they'll usually the only fact that they'll bring up is that this is a deadly bird out to kill you and it can open you up like a velociraptor in Jurassic Park it's they also use the term it's a it's a modern day dinosaur yes it is a modern dinosaur because it's a bird but <laughs> it doesn't deserve that whole thing it's all all birds are modern day dinosaurs enough said Anyway, I said I'd give you a bonus death as well. This one is uh, another fatality, but it's the only known canine fatality by Cassowary. Oh, okay, okay. Undoubtedly, there's probably been other fatalities that have gone on unnoticed, but you know, this is one to certainly uh, to think about. Uh, in 1995, uh, a dog attacked a wild cassowary. Uh, the cassowary struck out at the abdomen. Um, and, well, basically kicked it in the belly. The blow left no puncture wounds, but such severe okay. bruising uh, occurred that the dog later died from an uh, an apparent intestinal rupture. Yeah, so, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, they are incredibly, incredibly powerful animals and not to be messed with. So as you can see, just like most larger animals, in terms of dangerousness, you're far more likely to fall foul of a snake bite or even an infection transmitted by a dog than you have of a, uh, of a cassowary come to hunt you down. Whilst cassowaries are certainly equipped to kill, and they certainly can, as we've uh, just seen, they don't seek out trouble. Uh, quite the contrary. Like most animals, these birds would much rather avoid uh, conflict by choosing to to flight over fight response mm-hmm. uh, and fighting is a last resort if they feel that their lives or most importantly their young are endangered 
This is widely considered the most dangerous of birds. Uh, this seems to be built on this very misguided idea that has seeped into public consciousness. It really, I mean, it really has. Like I say, it's it's in YouTube videos, TikToks, all these things where people portray them as some sort of super hunting bird. The actual number of fatalities from most birds is is almost none. I, I think there's maybe one or two cases of people being knocked off of cliffs or having severe attacks on on like a, a small scale. Most birds have not killed people. I tried to look up the number of fatalities from ostriches. There doesn't seem to even be much of a number for them. It ranged everywhere from five to zero. And the one that said five said it was a guess. So you may mm. as well say, oh, it's, it's a million, you know, it's just a guess. <laughs> you are more likely to get killed by, I don't know, Vending uh, machines. A vending machine. <laughs> yeah. Cows. Then you are by most birds. We're, birds have far more to fear from us. But unfortunately, this idea seems to have uh, perpetuated um, the idea of, of them. Uh, so much so that it seeped into the, the sort of public consciousness. During World War II, American and Australian troops stationed in New Guinea were warned to steer clear of them to basically make sure that they didn't get attacked. Keep in mind that they were fighting the Japanese at this point, people with guns, you know, so you, you've got a gun, it's a bird, it's, it's, <laughs> you're going to win. Um, in fact, going further back, in the 1958 book Living Birds of the World, uh, ornithologist Ernest Thomas uh, Gillard wrote, the inner or second of the three toes is fitted with a long, straight, murderous nail, which can sever an arm or eviscerate an abdomen with ease. There are many records of natives being killed by this bird, apparently having their arms lopped off as well. <laughs> I doubt it could ever <laughs> take an arm off. But no. yes, 1950s uh, ornithologists apparently thought that they could. So as you can see, the view of the danger posed by Casperies has been uh, has basically been completely and utterly blown out of the water. And unfortunately, just like with things like alpha wolf theory and all these these other things that just spread like wildfire, it's been reprinted by other authors as well into uh, works of fiction as well, giving this this bigger bigger than life appearance. So there are other authors that have reprinted it into all sorts of other media. Um, in two thousand three. A historical study, a study of 221 cassowary attacks showed that 150 had been against humans. So they have attacked other animals. Um, mm -hmm. I've seen a cassowary attack a kangaroo through a fence, but that was because their enclosures were next to each other and the kangaroo was not wanting to back down. Neither was the cassowary. So, but that doesn't mean that, you know, they were out to kill each other. It's just two animals that thought they could take a chance. But anyway, of the 221, uh, 150 were against humans. 75% of these had been from cassowaries that had been fed by people. Big thing to keep in mind there. 71% of the time, the birds had chased or charged the victim, and 15% of the time they had kicked. Of the attacks, 73% involved the birds expecting or snatching food, so everyone gets annoyed when they see a, a herring gull stealing your chips. Make the bird much larger and potentially more dangerous. That is what happens is that bird is going to try and take your food. 
5% involving defending their natural food sources, 15% involved defending themselves, and 7% involved defending their chicks or eggs. Only one human death was reported amongst those 150 attacks. This was done um, uh, on wild animals, so the, the one in Florida didn't count. And of those 150 attacks, like I say, uh, only one human death was reported amongst those 150, which was the one that we just talked about in 1926. Uh, and the one from Florida doesn't count because it was a captive uh, bird. So as you can see, these you know these birds are vastly blown out of proportion. But the main thing to take away from there is human interaction with these birds and thinking of them as some sort of, I don't know, tourist attraction that's not going to attack you and pushing your luck is going to get you into a bad situation. Um, we'll get onto that in, in just a bit, um, where we are taking away their habitat and replacing it with tourist spots. So it brings into that uh, interaction that bit more. So yeah. the evolutionary history of the ratites, the group, like you said, Aaron, that these birds belong to is is uncertain, but it's, it's generally believed that uh, as the ancient continent of Gondwanaland split, the ancestors of all of these birds diverged into the variety of species that we now see scattered across the Southern Hemisphere. In the case of the cassowary, uh, became limited to the humid rainforests of northern Australia, which shrank over time as Australia uh, shifted further and further south and Antarctica split away and started to freeze over, meaning that Australia dried out and only the very top part of Australia is humid rainforest. Uh, they're also found in Papua New Guinea as well, uh, right the way up into the rainforest there, where it is far more tropical and humid. But the southern cassowary is found in both places, but it's the only species you'll find in northern Australia, which is the one that we're predominantly dealing with. Mm. So it evolved into three large, solitary, mostly fruit-eating species. I say mostly fruit-eating. They'll quite happily eat anything that they come across. So there's three separate species of cassowary, the southern being the largest. So the real story we need to focus on for this species uh, is just how rare they are becoming. So like I say, there is a number of interactions of people and uh, cassowaries that lead to bad situations. If you've ever been anywhere that's supposed to be a wild situation and you see tourists turning up, trying to pose with wild animals for photos, it's never going to end well. I'm sure, Aaron, you've seen plenty of, of those sort of videos where you see turtles trying to come onto a beach to lay eggs and people sitting on them thinking it's funny that, you know, this isn't yeah. just a wild animal. The only difference is if a turtle turned around and suddenly bit someone, they would lash out at the turtle because somehow it's it's an offense for it to protect itself, itself. You know. So, yeah, we need to focus on just how rare these birds are becoming because they really are becoming rare in Australia. Uh, a recent study in the north of Townsville, which is a, a city in Queensland, which is in the most southerly part of this bird's range. Only 16 adult birds were estimated to roam the tropical rainforest just outside of Townsville. But for the first time, a citizen science project worked to basically shed light on their populations. So I've got some quotes saying that they're very secretive birds uh, from the, the head researcher from the Palama Range Citizen Science Program, Ren McLaren, said that they're very secretive birds. Bit of an understatement. Uh, a team of 40 researchers bushwalked um, for three days 
scouring over 2,050 hectares of potential habitat for signs of these birds. Mrs. McLean said that it's the most in-depth population cassowary survey that they'd ever conducted in the region. They were looking for footprints, dung, uh, sightings, vocalizations, anything that showed these birds were in the area. But unfortunately, none of these birds uh, were seen over the three days. They were, however, thrilled to find evidence that the species still existed in the rainforest. They got three vocal, uh, three detections of three different groups of vocalizations were heard through microphones dotted throughout the area, uh, and quite an unusual, uh, which was quite unusual for this area. So they've they've proved that there is at least two birds in this area. You know, that's that's better than nothing, but still not great for a bird that is very elusive anyway to try and find evidence and then find that it's lacking, it's kind of sad that uh, they've only found potentially two birds. So Mm. further along from there, though, you've got a place called Mission Beach, which is an area where road accidents are the greatest single cause of southern cassowary deaths. Roads cut through the cassowary's territory, uh, making it necessary for the birds to travel across them when looking for food. Birds can also be attracted to the roads by people feeding them or throwing litter from their vehicles. Yet again, we are causing the bigger issue here. Unrestrained wild dogs are also another cause of deaths for cassowaries, uh, just basically wandering wandering the bush and attacking them, doing what dogs can do. So keep your dog on a lead. Really good idea, unless you want it getting kicked by a cassowary. Almost certainly, though, the cassowary is going to come off far worse. This seemed to be far more of a problem in areas closer to residential developments, and a lot of these areas are being built on. Chicks and sub-adults, which are small enough to be killed by dogs or packs of dogs, they've also known uh, them to kill adults, pursuing them until they're exhausted and then attacking them. Dogs have also indirectly affect cassowaries through their very presence as well, influencing the feeding movements and general behavior of the birds. They can also attack and kill cassowaries when they wander into suburban areas, seeking food or water. And that does happen. Um, I've seen an emu that wandered into the suburban area where close to where we live, wandered in and then sort of just wandered back into the bush. But it's, you know, something that can happen increasingly when we build on areas right on the edge of rainforests uh, where these animals have nowhere else to go. And let's face it, there's easy food and water in suburban areas. So they are usually solitary. Cassowaries do live in a home range that fluctuates depending on the seasons. And yet again, this home range is affected directly by the size of the area and the availability of food in that area. So they can be somewhere between 0.52 kilometers squared and 2.35 kilometers squared. The home range of female cassowaries usually overlaps the home ranges of several males. A little bit like orangutans in that sort of situation where you'll have a, one male and then you'll have several female territories sort of satelliting around the edge of it. But that shows that you need those connected areas of rainforest to be able to, be able to allow these birds to, well, interbreed, uh, not, not interbreed, sorry. Cassowaries are territorial birds and generally contact between adults only occurs during mating season, which is May to November. So we're right in the middle of it, actually. Pairs of, ca- uh, pairs of cassowaries will court briefly and mate and then separate. A female can mate with several males in one season, uh, and they will then lay three to five large olive green eggs, generally between June and October. 
if you've ever seen a cassowary egg, they are such a bright, vibrant green. It's unbelievable. In fact, all the ratites have incredible looking eggs, but the best ones are the cassowary and the emu, which have both bright green eggs that look absolutely stunning. So the eggs are incubated by the male, just like in ostriches, uh, for about 50 days, and he'll guard the eggs and raise the chicks. The juveniles begin to fend for themselves about 8 to 18 months of age when they're basically chased away out of the territory by the male, which, if you think about it, is an incredibly long period to rear up uh, a chick for a bird as well. Keep in mind that most birds don't hang around with their parents for 18 months of age. That's a decent amount of time. Their biggest job, though, in the environment is as seed dispersers. Now, if you've ever met any or ever been around any ratite, which is, as Aaron said before, the ostriches, the emus, the rears, the cassowaries, uh, and the um, the kiwi, all bar the kiwi are pretty much spend their lives eating fruits, seeds, nuts, and then pulling them out again. Uh, the exception, obviously, being the uh, the kiwi, which actually fulfills the same ecological role in New Zealand as something like a hedgehog does in Europe or, or the Americas. Um, it eats worms, effectively. The ratites uh, are really important seed dispersers. A lot of seeds and fruits will go straight through the animal's gut, having very little stripped off it, and come right back out the other side in what's called a splat. Emu splats are famous for being effectively like a cow pad. Uh, and if you're wandering through the bush and you come across one, you could effectively scrape it up because it will dry quite nice and hard and solid, put it in a plant pot, water it, and you'll end up with a whole load of native Australian plants growing. And the same would be true for cassowary poo. Uh, it would be jam-packed full of it, although because they're in a rainforest, it's probably not going to dry nice and solid. But uh, many, many plants will not germinate until they've been through the gut of a cassowary. So they are vitally important. As they wander through their territories, picking up fruits, swallowing them whole, they will just, well, disperse seeds all over their territory, replanting new trees and keeping the whole cycle of the rainforest going. Also importantly, their dung actually acts as a fertilizer. So just like with the emu splats, the cassowary splats, their poo helps to uh, grow the, the plants to grow uh, as they start off as seedlings. And in fact, Lots of other animals depend on cassowary poo to be able to find food. White-tailed rats, bush rats, and muskrat kangaroos sometimes actually feed on the seeds directly in southern uh, cassowary droppings, helping to further distribute the seeds as well as they're carried off by those other small marsupials. So they are vitally important to keeping the rainforest alive and keeping the rainforest happy and healthy. They are possibly one of the most amazing species in Australia, and they always get held up as being this deadly creature that's out to get you. I, I worked very briefly with them in Australia, uh, four of them, and we did go in with them, which, thinking back on it now, would be a health and safety nightmare if you ever did that in the UK. But they are still an amazing bird that uh, that aren't aren't as aggressive as people make them out to be. Other aggressive birds that I've come across... Ostriches. I've had one try and kick out that hated everyone, and he snapped a plank with one kick of his uh, of his foot just to basically get at people. He was that aggressive of a male. 
emus i've never really come across an aggressive one they've always just been dopey things what about you aaron i've actually not had uh i've been quite lucky all the ratites i've worked with have been super pleasant some of them have been quite frankly softies yeah i mean you know the emus that i worked with and mm. they were the biggest softies in the world and the cassowaries as well weren't exactly terrible they loved their food and you know they loved having you bring it to them every day loads of different things we used to give them whole tomatoes whole plums all these different fruits that they would just pick up throw into the air swallow down and it is gone and then comes out the other side if we'd have probably left all of that in there to grow we would have ended up with tomatoes and plums and all sorts of things growing in those enclosures um they're just amazing birds and uh, and i'm sure tani who we had on for that interview a while ago who lives up in the area where these birds are would probably second the thought of saying we need to really not uh, we, we need to really be conscious of when we go into areas where these birds are we don't approach them they are a wild animal and just because you're on holiday doesn't mean that the animals that are around you are friendly or want to be bothered that beach that i was saying about mission beach they uh, routinely have uh, there's routinely photos that come up on on the internet of cassowaries wandering down the beach and tourists walking behind them and everything that is not the thing to do Observe it from a distance, take as many photos as you want, but don't get up in front of the animal and expect it not to be happy. Uh, and uh, Don't expect it to be happy with you if you're getting in its way or getting in the way of its chick. In fact, there's an island uh, up that way as well called Fraser Island where there are dingoes and people routinely get attacked by dingoes. Not severely, but usually just bitten because they get too close to the dingoes. They'll have... Uh, food out and the same sort of thing the dingoes are going to come in for food and will quite happily try and take it and people don't respect their distance so the biggest thing is respect that it's a wild animal it's just insane that people would think otherwise you know it's it's crazy but that is the cassowary for you a bird that gets a really bad reputation doesn't deserve it it certainly doesn't deserve the killer reputation that it gets it should be seen as the seed dispersing first domesticated bird in the world very good yeah i didn't know that they were the the ones that were that that did shock me there they were the first ones domesticated yeah it was it was quite a cool fact when i came across that doing the research i was i i didn't know that either and the amount of people killed by cassowaries i must admit i thought it was a little bit higher than that i thought it was probably in the realms of about five or six but diving deeper into it it turns out like i say it's only two and technically only one in the wild. So, shall we move on from the rainforests of Northern Australia to our mailbag for this week? Yeah. Let's kick out at it. Bing! You've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Right, well, we're into our emails for this week, and just before we start, actually, Aaron, I just sent you uh, a video clip from Facebook uh, that I just saw whilst we were in our sort of gap in between recording where we let everything update uh of a bunch of people in presumably a park in america um with a wapiti uh a, an elk basically mm -hmm. the uh, the american equivalent of our red deer very impressive stag and people getting 
well, just like we were saying in the cassowary creature feature, far too close, trying to take photos and standing in the way of what is a potentially lethal animal. Yeah. And and being surprised when this animal jumps over a fence like it's nothing. I mean, he was a he was a big stag that uh, that one. Yeah, huge. Mm. I, I mean, I'd love to see one of them, but uh, not as close as they as some of those people were getting. The other thing it brings to mind is people in places like Yellowstone, where you see bison and that, and people just standing there and expecting these bison to move out of your way. It's not how it works. You you move out of their way. <laughs> when you weigh a, you know half a ton to a ton, everything moves out of your way. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Anyway, back on to our actual subject. Um, we're looking through the question that we posed to you last week, uh, which was, um, what's the most shocking wildlife encounter that you've ever had? Uh, we've got some responses um, from this one. Margaret Townsend said, monitor lizard, five foot in a quarry on Kenya. I'm guessing in Kenya. Nothing as to what the monitor lizard was doing, but uh, I mean, they're impressive enough animals. David Thomas said a male Muscovy duck trying to drown a Canada goose by holding its neck underwater. I've seen attempted poultry murder at least twice now. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) My other half has put uh, a matriarch elephant and a young bull elephant facing off whilst our van was parked in the middle. She went on to explain uh, to me the full uh, sort of story of that one. It was these two elephants facing off and them being caught in the middle of all of this. And, um, yeah, two very large animals just making their van look quite small. Uh, and then Stuart Beard has said, uh, Hannah and I went canyon jumping in the Western Ghats mountain range many years ago. And late in the day, a rather knackered Hannah was dropped behind uh, dropped behind the group. So I stayed with her. Darkness is falling. And when we became aware of being followed, the leopard makes rather distinctive noises. A hair raising moment, I can assure you. Um, yeah. Not something you want uh, following you, a leopard. I think that sounds utterly terrifying. They actually, it, it was Stuart's comment that, do you, do you remember last week when, when we answered this question ourselves and I said, I'm sure there's there's something in my mind telling me that I've got more, but a more interesting one than than the ones I had. It's actually Stuart's comment that uh, that reminded me of, of, of the best ones. Go um, on then. So if, I'm, if I may indulge in in just in in three stories so uh the, the first story is that i i spent a, like a, a, t- a tiny tiny amount of time with some uh mahuts um in in mountain mahuts uh helping them look after their elephants improving like some husbandry where i could and stuff like that and and um one day we are with with the elephants and and a stampede of uh of Asian water buffalo come up through the river. Mm. And the firstly, that site is incredibly impressive. But secondly, the, the baby elephant um made a roar that uh, my back was turned to the elephants at this point. And the hairs on the back of my uh, neck stood on end because that roar was identical to the tyrannosaur from, from Jurassic Park. Well, I think you mean it the it's, other way around, but it's well, yeah. Because what I mean to say is, is that they they sampled they sampled baby uh, elephants' um, uh, calls 
to make the Tyrannosaur uh, roar. But yeah, hearing that and seeing the the stampede and how the elephants reacted, that was one. Uh, another one was when we, we when I was in Malaysia. I've mentioned before that again, tiny, 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 tiny uh, bit of experience on uh, on tiger conservation. One night we were staying out in the uh, in the jungle, and um, uh, we found a, a the a herd of elephants had been through and pooed on the uh, where the campfire was, and in the same like couple day stint. Uh, we were taken out into the jungle by the Batek tribe, by by the women in the Batek tribe. They were going on a, a forage and we were just going to follow them to where we were camping and then they were going to go back to the to the Batek village. And um, not long after they, uh, not long after they'd um, disappeared, the men turned up with their, with their blowpipes and, and, and stuff like machetes and stuff. Uh, and the women had found just like 15 yards out of our camp camp area, a boar that had its throat, um, its throat attacked and, and removed. Uh, and it was outside like a little kind of rocky kind of like formation, very typical tiger kill and a very typical kind of tiger, um, hide kind of area, tiger den, denning area. Um, so we, we were up all night with the tribesmen uh, in this little leaf shelter that we'd made, um, looking for any kind of ice shine and stuff with butts <laughs> firmly clenched. <laughs> but that was cool because well, staying up so. that night, staying up that late, we saw a lot of uh, invertebrates that glow, um, and we saw a lot of like you know a lot of amphibians as well. It was very cool. Hmm. Ah, oh, that's very yeah. That. I mean, terrifying, but also cool. Hmm. Right, well, this week's question, um, based on the fact that I was very happy to go through all the different books that were in the gift shop in the Natural History Museum, um, what's your book recommendations? I think that's something we haven't done for a while. I haven't touched on it since doing Pop Culture Corner. My uh-huh. definite recommendation at the moment is Darwin's Notebook, The Life and Times and Discovery of uh, Charles Darwin by Jonathan Clements. Like I say, it's a really fantastic little book with some really nice illustrations um, and pointing out all the different uh, things that he came across and his earlier life as well. Um, Just reading the first couple of pages, I've been pretty amazed and even found out that when I went to New Zealand, the place that I went to, um, the actual, the the little town that we stopped in on the way, uh, Piha, um, been where Darwin spent Christmas Day and there was a quote from his journal saying how he had got to the point on his journey that he he was actually starting to despise being in different places at uh, that that time of the year and he said that he hoped the next year would see him celebrating Christmas Day back in the UK so it was um, quite an interesting book I would definitely recommend it to anyone um to uh, to find out there i don't know as to where you would find it probably amazon or one of those sort of things but probably the natural history museum's website as well but yeah that's uh that's my book recommendation aaron you got any book recommendations um aside from like tolkien natural <laughs> history uh it could be natural history natural history of middle earth <laughs> <laughs> um no uh i i actually 
there's not actually many that come i'm not very good you'll notice that every time you ask me questions i have i need a week to to think about an answer <laughs> um there are what a couple was, the, what was the last natural history book that you read oh i don't know i've been reading fiction for a long time um i will say that i do tend to try and get hold of the uh, the books, the com- the companion books for David Attenborough documentaries. Um, I I love those books. So, I, uh, Life on Life on Earth, I think, was one of them. Hmm. Um, yeah, that uh, mainly for the mainly for the pictures. <laughs> 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 uh, but no, well, there I'll you go. I mean, picture think, books are fun. <laughs> well, it's not pictures; it's photographs. The photographs are stunning. Um, I'll have a think and I'll go through my collection and see. There is there is actually one book that I'm really fond of that's a cheetah book that cost me something stupid like 14p. Um, but it's it then went out of print and it's one of the best books on cheetahs that that you can get. Uh and the money uh that that thing is worth has skyrocketed. I got it 14p off Amazon. I think this is back in the day when Amazon was just a bookstore. Um and wow. uh, it's now like I think last I looked, it was uh 180 or 200 something pound. Um, that's not that it matters because I I, w- I won't be getting rid of that book. I like that book too much. Definitely, yeah. Well, you can uh, send in what you think your book recommendations are, um, onto our social media pages where that will be going up, um, and get in contact with us that way you can also get in contact with us through our gmail which is the nat history covered at gmail.com just like this uh this listener has done they've got in contact with us via our email aaron what have we got uh we actually have a couple of uh, short emails because we're we're trying to get through through our backlog uh so we've got a couple of short emails from our patreon uh supporter jen greenhall um mm-hmm. So the 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 first one that I'll read out first because I think she deserves a bit of a shout out for this. Uh, it says, "Hello, you lovely lot. I came across this on LinkedIn. She sent us a um, a link, which is an open letter regarding Iberian orcas and their interactions with boats, which I won't read out now. But what I'll do is I'll have a read through it and then I'll summarize it in the next in in the next recording fuel." She says that uh, she thought we'd like a read of that. And yeah, well, we did that. We did that news article on that exact. We did uh, subject, which is which is why I reckon it would be worth just having a Hmm. quick look and a quick summary. Um, Her email continues. I'm a little behind on the podcast. I'm saving them up because I'm hiking up Snowdon on Saturday night, Sunday morning for charity, uh, Macmillan Cancer Charity. Uh, So you are part of my distraction from the slog. Interestingly, through my training, which had really revolved around the Yorkshire Free Peaks, the lakes, and a trial up Snowdon itself, I was constantly reminded of George Mombot's uh, view on how these areas have become pretty void of wildlife, other than on a minimal level. Just a thought. Um, so yeah, thank you for for, for the email, uh, Jen. And uh, I wanted to read this one out first because of the uh, your your hike up Snowdon would have been this weekend. Just uh, before this uh before this recording will be released um so good luck with that i hope it all went well and uh yeah it's a very um 
that that uh that that uh point of view from uh George Monbois is very um very apparent uh, especially down in Devon where everybody thinks it's beautiful and green it's uh it's quite a barren landscape as well here um yeah her, certainly in some places yeah. her second email i don't know if you've seen this Gareth but she says she's just seen this on an allotment an, on an allotment group on facebook an invasive species uh of hammerhead flatworm and oh very the cool. photo is about six inch long uh dark hammerhead uh uh with a kind of yellowy blondish body and a, a dark brown stripe down its back that's pretty mm. cool i've come across them once or twice yeah never found the hammerhead species of flatworm but they are they are an invasive species most of them are australian or new zealand oh, um, right. where they come from and have just been introduced over the years they are predatory on mm. earthworms and other things like that and they're just the the way that they move around they look so alien they're utterly amazing looking species and i'm i'm fascinated with them despite the fact that they are an invasive species and i've not... always wanted to try and get a hold of one or two of them just just to see them up close a bit more i'm not too clued up on them what what damage do they cause as an invasive species over here oh they they eat are native species so right right so, yeah okay, they sort of deplete native stocks of of earthworms and things which is are already there... in some places hard to come by yeah is 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 there quite a sizable population of them they're getting bigger unfortunately yeah so they're not they're not bothered by the the habitat here the 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 climate well, no if you if you think of large parts of the uk especially anywhere sort of south of uh, I don't know, Scotland, effectively, <laughs> even though there are ones in Scotland. Um, we're very similar climate-wise to parts of New Zealand and parts of Australia. Um, okay. We just get more extreme cold than some of those places. So parallel, you know, they can they can survive relatively well. Fair enough. And um, the, the third email from Jen... Um... Is actually related to the question that you've asked the uh, the the listenership this week. So shall I read it out to inspire some answers for next week, or should I leave it till Go next on week? then? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So Jen, this is completely unrelated to the question because this actually came in on the fifth of August, uh, so a month ago. Uh, like I say, we've got a bit of a backlog that we're getting through. Um, and her email reads: "Hello, you lovely lot. I'm just reading this." this book and wondered if any of you have read it. It's really interesting. I wonder if it, this would be a good future guest. Uh, and the book is Islands of Abandonment, a non-fiction book about the, the ecology and psychology of abandoned places. Um, just basically life in the post-human landscape. Uh, the author is Cal Flynn, um, if anyone is mm. interested in that. So there you go. That there's there's a few emails in for us. Uh, to read today. Oh, that sounds quite good. And a definite inspiration there for anyone wanting to, uh, well, put forward an idea of uh, of a book that they are reading or think that is worth reading. Um, and as Aaron was saying, um, Jennifer is, in fact, one of our Patreons. Uh, you can basically join the long, the ever-growing list 
of uh, Patreons that are supporting the podcast by um, chipping in by doing that. Uh, one of the various tiers. Uh, we've got the well. This is the part of the show where I get to read out the now, like say, increasing list of our Patreons. So we've got Fogtober, uh, Jennifer Greenhall, uh, Chelsea McKee. Welcome, Chelsea. You're one of our newest uh, Patreons, and Connie P. They're all making a contribution uh, that way. But if you want to make a contribution in a non-financial way, something that helps us out immensely is uh, by sharing, liking, subscribing, giving us a good review, a bad review even, um, of the podcast on whatever podcasting service you are listening to us on, telling a friend, telling an enemy, get the word out there. That helps more than you would know um, and does a huge amount of work. So thank you very much to everyone who has done any of those things uh, and anyone who's thinking of doing any of those things. But uh, that pretty much brings us to the point in the show where I get to say thank you, Aaron, for coming along. Again, thank you for uh, thank you for having me. It's been a good Absolutely. one. I, I enjoyed your uh, your category creature feature uh, greatly. And uh, thanks again to our listenership for mm. for listening along to to us uh, chat and and for sending in such great questions and emails and the uh, the uh, suggestions for news articles. And yeah, just to reiterate what Gareth said, please uh, keep. Yeah, uh, giving us those ratings and those um those reviews, they really do help in sharing us about. And if you if you think that we deserve it, uh, the Patreon pledges is, is really, uh, really helpful uh, to keeping this this podcast going and helping us improve it. So yeah, and welcome to Chelsea uh, again. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, and that leaves me to say uh, a big thank you to you at home for listening and we'll see you next time here in the natural history cupboard bye so gareth yes did you get a good picture of uh cassowary yeah i did actually i got like a really good sort of selfie with it what did it cost you my arm <laughs>